If you want to keep that passage open there in front of you, I think you'll, you'll find that helpful. We come to the third chapter of Ephesians this morning, and really what we'll focus on is the mystery of the gospel. I live in a house uh, full of many mysteries, and um, chief among them seems to be to me how the snack cupboard depletes so, so quickly, uh, despite the amount of uh, materials put in there. In fact, I once, uh, now infamous in our family, had an Easter egg that was twice eaten before I even got a hold of it. How does that possibly happen? Well, here we have the biggest mystery of all, the mystery of the gospel, And Paul is going to continue right on from where he left us off in chapter two here. He tells us for this reason, that is following on from chapter two, where he's told us the great extent to which God has gone to in Christ in order to make us alive through him, through his death for us. We were once dead in trespasses, completely hopeless and helpless, and he has now made us alive. And so in in so doing brought us together as a people. Now, following on from this, he wants to share with us firstly the mystery that was made known to Paul here in the first six verses there. I wonder if you'll have ever caught it. I suppose it's a bit old now. There's a great uh, scene in The Simpsons where uh, Mo, the pub landlord, uh, tells Homer that he was once a boxer. Homer's getting into to boxing. He says, oh, I was, I was once a boxer. And he runs through this sort of progressive list of, of monikers that he was given. He said, yeah, when I first started out, I, would, I was kid gorgeous. Later on, I was kid presentable. Then I was kid gruesome. Then I was kid Mo. If there's one thing that Paul might say about his journey uh, into ministry at sharing the gospel here with the Ephesians as he has uh, across uh, Europe and into Asia, it would be that actually there is a price to being a minister of the gospel. Serving Christ is a wonderful gift. And we all, of course, do do that in various ways. And some of us, in fact, specifically work for Christian organizations of various different types. But that shouldn't be glamorized because there is always, always a price. Paul leads us off here by saying he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he gives us two difficult statements there, doesn't he? I wonder if you notice them, that he's both a prisoner for Christ Jesus and a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. There's two difficult statements there, isn't there? How do we make sense of that? That how, How can he really be seen to be a prisoner for Jesus? And how can it really be that he's a prisoner on their behalf? Acts chapter 20, Paul has said goodbye to the Ephesian elders he said that he's constrained or that is bound in the spirit. And he senses that things are going to go badly for him. He's making the journey up towards Jerusalem again and has this sense clear in his mind and in his spirit that this isn't going to end well. After all, he was warned after his conversion that God must show him how much he would suffer for the sake of his name. Into the next chapter, Acts 21, uh, we see Agabus coming down and prophesying to Paul and and to those there that Paul will be bound at Jerusalem. He's going to be bound and he's going to be sent off to the Gentiles. Later on, we see in that chapter that he arrives at Jerusalem. And whilst he's accepted by the apostles, who are somewhat relieved when they hear Paul, because they've heard rumors about his gospel, they've heard rumors uh, particularly about what expectations Paul does, or maybe more to the point, does not put on believers to follow the law. 
They're relieved when they hear from him because they realize that he's not against the law uh, at all. But nonetheless, a commotion is stirred up. We read in, in chapter 21, verse 27, that Jews from Asia, possibly some even from uh, Ephesus, who had stirred up riots when Paul was last there, have caused a commotion there. And, and what is the commotion? Well, they, they claim falsely that Jesus had brought a Gentile, an Ephesian named Trophimus, into the temple and so had desecrated really uh, the ritual and ceremonial law he's then arrested Paul finally when getting to make a some sort of defense to the crowd later in chapter 22 they initially listen until he says that God had said to him go I will send you far away to the Gentiles that's the moment at which they turn upon him viciously and listen to the reaction here Acts 22 verses 21 and 22 here up to this word they listened to him then they raised up their voice and said away with such a fellow from the earth he shouldn't be allowed to live there's the second one of those difficult questions answered how can Paul be considered to be a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles was a way of Paul saying that actually the only crime for which he's imprisoned which is recognized here in Luke's account in Acts is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles he's a prisoner on their behalf acts chapter 23 we read jesus appearing to paul telling him to take comfort to take courage to keep going but he's going to have to testify to him in rome as well and here is answered the first of those difficult questions in all of this jesus is somehow mysteriously working his plan to reveal the gospel so that he can be considered a prisoner for Jesus in that this hasn't happened over and against God's will this hasn't happened as some sort of surprise this is in fact actually part of Jesus's plan here you will have to go to Rome to testify to me there actually Paul has put it in a different way writing in uh, the book of Philippians he's writes Ephesians and Philippians both whilst he's in prison around about 60 to 61 AD so very similar uh, sort of time and he tells them what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel Philippians 1 verse 12 and finally Acts chapter 25 will tell us of Paul finally making this appeal to the emperor in Rome testifying to the gospel that that's the only reason that he's suffering on the one hand, he seems a religious political prisoner of some jealous Jews and some somewhat ignorant Gentiles who just want to keep the peace. But on the other, he is a prisoner for preaching the gospel and he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. There is always a cost to ministry. It might not always be imprisonment, but there is always a cost much like Mo as he reflects on his career through boxing, that the further he goes through, the more he's shaped and changed by those scars. Don't be under any illusions as to what ministry will look like for you too. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me for you. And the word there, and we've thought about it in chapter two, and we'll come to it again here in chapter three. There's another sort of word uh, play that Paul is making here in, in the original uh, 
Greek here. You won't recognize that so much in the English. That's some of the limitation of having to translate it back and forward again and again. But he says here that he's been given this stewardship. And the word there is oikonomian. You might recognize it from last week when we were talking about Paul using a very similar word to talk about the church being a household, a family of God. Oikos is the root there. He's been given a stewardship of grace like a a household manager over them. He's picking up the same word used in chapter 2 verse 19 when he talks about us being members of the household, the oikoi of God. Paul has been given a stewardship here like a household manager. Every family needs one, don't they? Someone who pulls everybody together, who gets people in the right place at the right time, who makes things happen, who organizes the bills. Every family needs one. And for many of you, as certainly was for me growing up, that was my mum. That If you had taken my mum away, nothing would have happened. We might have sort of had some fun, but nothing would have happened. We wouldn't have coped. Paul has been given this household manager sort of role here. And look at the direction of it here. For you, or actually you would, is the way it's put. That's not really English, so we don't put it like that, but it's directed towards them. It's a ministry that is calling him to expend himself for the sake of others. And that's always the case of ministry. There are costs to ministry that are the scars and the wounds that you pick up, and you'll not, unfortunately, be able to avoid them. They'll come. But there's also the cost of ministry that is that in its very nature, it is giving out yourself to others. There's always a cost. And Paul now is going to answer for us an anticipated objection that might come that is... Paul, what has qualified you for this role? Or perhaps, as you may have heard it, you know, in, in the pub in the past, you know, who do you think you are? And, you know, whenever you sort of hear someone saying that, that, ah, man, drink up and get out if you don't want to get involved in the collateral of this. Who do you think you are to be the person to do this, Paul? What's qualified you for this? So he tells us here, verse 3, that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. We don't know necessarily whether uh, Paul had actually written further letters to Ephesians, whether he'd written a previous letter to them. We don't know. But we do know that this was something that Paul was in the habit of saying, because we can read at the beginning of Galatians, Paul's sort of quite detailed account of his journey towards ministry and as a way of trying to show people, look, um, you know, the other apostles do actually approve of me. Okay, that's quite important for people to be able to see that I'm, I'm not just coming out here on my own steam, on my own winds, saying my own kind of ideas, that actually, no, those who were with Jesus, those who are around him also, are, are with me and support me. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. This is what's qualified him for this role. To take a quote from Sherlock Holmes, compare it to Paul here. He says, my name is Sherlock Holmes. It is my business to know what other people don't know. And in many senses, this is Paul's role that a mystery has been revealed to him, as with the other apostles, that hasn't to others, that it's his job to reveal now to others. 
And the truth of Jesus would have remained a mystery for Paul, apart from God having revealed it. Much the same for us, as he's told us in chapter 2, that we were once dead in trespasses. But then at that moment, whilst we were still dead, God has made us alive. God has revealed himself. What has qualified him for this role is not being especially perceptive. It's not being especially insightful or especially even having a high aptitude to the role. It's simply that Jesus has revealed himself to him. He tells him here, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, uh, which wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's a way of him saying, whenever he says, you know, apostles and prophets, Scripture. Those who have authored, humanly speaking, Scripture. That This is actually, on the one hand, you see them writing. They're writing with their words. They're writing with their personalities. That's why it's a different thing to read the letters in the Gospel of uh, John, the Apostle, as it is to read Paul. You see a different personality and a different way of wording things, different kind of imagery. Human authors, and yet Christ mysteriously speaking through them both the same. If you want to hear God, then read scripture. That's where you can guarantee that you'll hear him. Uh, my principal at Bible College used to, used to say that his, his favorite bit of the service, the bit that was most important to him, was the reading of scripture. Because he said... And he, he had no qualms sort of saying this in front of all of you so that you sort of heard it is, I can't guarantee that what any of the rest of what you're going to say to me is God speaking. I, I can't guarantee that. But I know for a fact, when the word is read, I definitely am hearing from him. So the most important part for me is that that is there. Everything else might be a bonus on top of that. But if you want to hear from God, then read his word. God has revealed something here for Paul that wasn't formally known, and, and yet we can see in Scripture. How do we make sense of that? That in one sense it's there in Scripture, and yet people haven't seen it. Again, to come back to Sherlock Holmes, another quote from him here, the world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. For Christ is known in Scripture. He is there. He is present. He is evident. Every page really speaks of him. And yet, on the other hand, throughout the Old Testament, this progressively is revealed. In the 5th century, Augustine uh, made this statement that helps us to understand it. He says, the New Testament lies concealed in the Old. The Old lies revealed in the New that Jesus is absolutely the promise, the prophecy, the hope, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament speaks of. But because the way in which the gospel is revealed is, is progressive, you don't always know all the details of what God is doing at the beginning as to the end. Now through Christ, what was there, but maybe not so clear, is made clear in him. So that you can read all scripture now back in the light of Jesus. He becomes the lens through which we can understand everything that was once written. In a way, it was there, and yet it's not so clear for them. 
But listen now to the particular mystery here as we close this first section here. Look at the particular mystery that Paul is really speaking of. And he's already been speaking of it uh, as to it in the first two chapters, doesn't he? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, are members of the same body, and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. The particular mystery that Paul wants us to think about again, as he's been thinking about in the second chapter too, is that all, both Jew and Gentile, are members of this same family. That they all share the same kind of inheritance rights as children. And that all are sharing in the same promise, that is, of salvation. The mystery is... That Gentiles are now full and equal members. So that, and here's the thing, because you know, maybe you sat here this morning thinking, you know, that whole thing of Jew and Gentile is not all that relevant for us. Because we're almost exclusively Gentiles, I, I would bet. Perhaps there may be one or two of us who, who have some Jewish family. But for the most part of us, I would think we're just all Gentiles. So I, I, you know, how on earth does that really make sense as being such a significant thing but as we said before actually you can carry it forward and to think that actually you know there are no ethnic privileges now all of a sudden it starts to enter language that is relevant for us isn't it that there are no ethnic privileges here at all that all are made part of the same family the same reality applies for us as it did for the people there is the mystery made known to paul Secondly, verses 17 to th- uh, 7 to 13 here, sorry, we see the ministry that was given to Paul here. As God reveals the mystery of the gospel to us and we become part of the people of God, actually, so ministry is a gift given from God. Paul tells us, verse 7 here, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. And listen to how passive that is for Paul. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. A gift is something that I haven't done anything to contribute towards. I haven't done anything to earn it over and above anyone else. I've been made it. I've been given it. How has that happened? By the working of his power, not my talents. It's something that you're commissioned to. It's not a career choice. It's something that's a gift. It's not earned. It's through the working of God's power, not my talents. He says, though I'm very, the very least of all the saints. In fact, uh, Paul's language, again, there, the English struggles to capture it because, um, quite frankly, it doesn't make sense. So if you try to translate it, it wouldn't make sense to put it word for word in English. But he, he's saying that I am the least of the least. I'm less than the least of all the saints. You see something of Paul's humility here that he's making, and this is always what humility does. It does two things. It works in two directions. It makes little of myself and much of God. One of those things on their own is okay, but it's not enough. That's not really humility. Making little of myself but not much of God is not quite the same. Though I'm less than the least of all the saints he's given it to him translators have wondered what uh, paul is doing here his his word, uh, name in in latin paulus means uh, literally little small uh, and in tradition people think that that paul was perhaps uh, particularly short 
But I doubt that it's really this that Paul is thinking of. Paul has an acute sense of his own sin, doesn't he? He tells Timothy in his first letters, he's a chief of sinners. But Paul is also aware of some of the criticisms of him. We hear of it in 2 Corinthians 10. And perhaps he has some of these in mind, that there's a sense in which for many people are not very impressed by Paul. In fact, they say of him, he says here, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. That's a, that's a criticism that's been levied against him, that, ah, oh, here he is, he's good with a pen, but, you know, when he's in front of us, he's not of much account, is he? He's not so bold then, he's not so interesting and captivating then. Yeah, he can write good letters when he's not in front of us, but he's not much when he's before us. He continues again, uh, verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Literally, it's his speech has been ignored. It doesn't come to anything. Though I'm the least of the least, less than the least here. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's not done, and he couldn't have done, anything to have earned it. And he's here both preaching good news and sharing riches with them here. His job here, he says, he tells us, verse 8, is to preach the unsearchable, the You'll probably have a footnote in your, in your Bible there if you're reading it in, in your Bible that will say that it could say unfathomable. Fathom is a, a measurement for the depth of water. It's equivalent to around about six feet. So this is now unfathomable. Riches so deep, so great, that you can't get a measuring tape around it. You'll not be able to wrap your mind around it literally immeasurable riches it's you know to try to put it in to try to put something that you can't put in an image into an image uh, which is a problem in and of itself but it's like you know scrooge mcduck's money pit so deep so vast you'll never be able to count it all it's something that puts us completely out of our depth describing the indescribable how do we possibly do it? How can we possibly hope to, in any sense, this morning begin to wrap our minds around something that is overtly said to be not fully understandable? Verse 7 reminds us that it's through the working of his power. And then how do we balance that idea that, you know, Paul has said that the mystery has been revealed to him by Jesus. That God reveals himself and yet he sends people out to preach. How do we make sense of that? Paul will tell us in, in Romans about this very thing and put this urgency on people to preach the gospel. Because on the one hand, whilst God reveals it, absolutely, there's a need for the messenger to go. He says, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed, Romans chapter 10 here. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's a need for weak, 
incapable, inept people to be sent out to do the impossible. Because whilst it's our witness, it is actually God's work that changes people. It's God's work through our witness. That gives us more hope and less pressure. He preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ that he may bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Paul's purpose is the continuing revelation of the gospel. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. It's to call those, in many ways, obvious things to attention. Why has God revealed this to Paul? Why has he been given this task of revealing it to the flock? Paul now continues in these next few verses here, that through the church, the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities. So that the church is the central means of the fulfillment of God's mission on the earth. That's one of the things really we've been thinking about as we go through this letter of Ephesians together is what does it mean to be the people of God? Well, here's a really crucial uh, part of all of that message really is that through the church, the wisdom of God is being revealed to the rulers and to the authorities that the church is God's central means of his mission on the earth. And that there's this cosmic dimension to the preaching of the gospel that it's about something even beyond the gospel on the ground of, to human beings. We tend to imagine that we're the center of the universe, that everything is about us, and everything is about humanity. And actually, whilst humanity is important, there's a dimension and a level to all of this that is so far beyond, that actually God's glory and Jesus' salvation and redemption of the earth is not fully borne out until we see it affect every area and every realm of the cosmos. He is about something so far beyond just humanity, of which, amazingly, mysteriously, wonderfully, we're a part. But it is something far, far bigger that we've become part of. And this is his eternal purpose here, according to his eternal purpose. This is where the church isn't just uh, God's central means of, of working, but it's his eternal plan. It's, it's not some plan B. It, it's not God scrambling around and thinking, oh dear, I didn't expect this to happen. What, what can I possibly do to avert this now? This was always the plan. And so therefore we have boldness and access with confidence through faith, we're told. And Paul encourages us. Not to lose heart of what I'm suffering for you. His purpose here has been to try to encourage and reassure the Ephesians here that what he's facing is part of God's plan as everything else always is. It may seem like a, a disaster and a, a, a catastrophe that I may be seconded to Birmingham uh, for two years perhaps even. It could get as bad as that. But of course, it, it's all in God's plan and in his grace. Brandon doesn't have to go to Birmingham at least. But it's not some plan B. It's not some desperate scramble around from God. For us, it feels like that. because that's, that's, that's not how we would have written it. 
Why might they lose heart? Why might they be discouraged by what Paul's facing? Well, because they might feel that God's judgment is being met upon Paul. That God is rejecting Paul and his gospel. This is why he's in prison. Surely if you're following God, surely if you're a minister of God, then everything would go well, wouldn't it? Wouldn't the boss be pleased? And if the boss is displeased, wouldn't we see that? And then if that's the case, will we face the same? Will we too be judged and rejected for following this gospel? Paul says, no, no, take heart. This is God's plan. See the mystery made known to Paul. We see the ministry that's given to Paul. Thirdly, here we see this uh, prayer for strength that he gives. And you might think that with Paul's high view of, of God's power and his sovereignty that we've seen, and he's, he's expended great energy and, and effort in, in explaining for us, you know, is there much need for prayer then? Really, if, if God is that big, that great, that all-powerful, does he need me to ask? Do, do I really need to come to him to ask for things? I mean, he's, he's just the one who is able to just do. He tells us, and he makes this pivot again here, verse 14. For this reason, everything of what he said, and he's, bear in mind, he's just been talking about everything that's happening, showing the sovereign plan of God being revealed. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Actually, this high view of God's power, God's sovereignty, actually leads Paul to ask God. Because he is God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, has everything in control and command, is working everything out according to the eternal purposes of his will, I will ask. It leads him to ask more. This is the access that he's been talking about. Verse 12, he's talking about us having boldness and access with confidence through faith to pray boldness and confidence and access to make requests of such an all-powerful and yet loving heavenly father. Paul's got a household role, he's told us he's got that stewardship over the house, but actually here's God the head of every house here, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is his name, is named. God is the head of all Paul's prayer in, in chapter 1 asked for two kinds of wisdom, didn't it? In 1, uh, 15 to 23, after all of that build-up there, he's asking that uh, people would uh, be filled with the spirit of the knowledge of him. They would know him in their head. And that also the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That they would know of him in their hearts. And now this prayer is kind of similar, but now he's asking not so much for wisdom, but for empowerment. The first prayer in chapter one was about the wisdom to understand and to comprehend God. Now it's about actual that empowerment to be able to go and to do and to be all who God has made us to be. So that they may face all that they're going to have to face. He tells us here, verse 16, that according to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You might have the ability within you to be able to do all that God has set before you. According to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Verse 17 here, he continues, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you might have power through his spirit and he may dwell 
in your hearts through faith. And the two things are connected. That's not two different requests, actually. Those are two requests that are met in one answer. That Christ dwelling within our hearts uh, grants us that power and that strength to endure. Jesus came with that promise that he was Emmanuel, God with us. And the amazing thing we're seeing here is that that promise is, is born up because, you know, as Jesus dies, is resurrected, but then ascended and is not physically with us next to us, you wonder, how does a promise like Emmanuel, God with us, really bear out with a saviour who isn't here, who I, I can't touch, I can't necessarily see and, and hear, like, you know, for some of these people, they once did, they once did walk with him in that way. So how does this, how can this be true? How can this work out? Well, here we see how it works out that Christ is present with us through his spirit. So that he would be with us, not just near us, not just next to us, but in us and with us. Why does he ask these things here? Verse 17 to 18 here. You'd be rooted and grounded in love. Because you'd be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth love there's uh, an interesting thing you know the the breadth length height depth um so ephesus was a city that was hugely affected by uh kind of e esoteric sort of movies um uh, do you know what i mean like sort of uh, occult things so uh it's kind of secret hidden wisdom that's then revealed normally through kind of initiation rites that's what esoteric means but hidden gets revealed um, and the economy was shaped around that we hear then that when Paul starts to preach the gospel in Ephesus and people come to faith in Christ they abandon that because they realize that actually what more is there to know than all that we can know of the living God through Christ and it affects the economy because we hear of how people are coming out in their droves to get rid of their books and things of their former practices one of the things that was commonplace amongst those was to invoke power using this kind of of language of breadth length height depth and Paul redeems what was once used for very different purposes to say actually you're looking for power looking for something to help you do the thing that you you're not sure that you're going to be able to do which surely is why people turn even today to these kind of things isn't it to be able to find a sort of power outside of themselves you're looking for power you need to look no further than Christ himself. Uh, praying for them that they'll be able to comprehend, they'll be able to wrap their minds and their hearts around how great, how glorious God is. To come back to Sherlock Holmes again for some more wisdom, he says, I consider that a man's brain originally is like a little empty attic. And you have to stock it with such furniture as you choose. A fool takes in all the lumber of every sort that he comes across, so that the knowledge which might be useful to him gets crowded out, or at best is jumbled up with a lot of other things, so that he has a difficulty in laying his hands on it. Paul's prayer here might be put in a similar way of saying, you might be able to comprehend all that is really worth comprehending, and that is the power and the glory and the majesty of Christ to the expense of other less useful things. You might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a thing. This is the same fullness that Paul has spoken about in the letter to Colossians here, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within Jesus. And that now somehow, mysteriously, by being in Christ, we have Christ in us through the Spirit, so that we have the fullness of God now resident within us through Christ. What a thing. Paul wants them, above all other things, to remember that. And so Paul leaves us off with this wonderful piece of doxology here in the last couple of verses, this wonderful piece of worship from him. Paul's argument has built up and up in this first half of the letter up to the end of Ephesians chapter 3 will then enter the second half of the book after that and now comes this great outburst of worship for the God he's been speaking of he says here verse 20 that him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or we think if that's so if God is that great that far more abundantly powerful to do anything we could possibly ask, anything we could possibly even think or conceive of. Why ask? Why ask at all? Could just leave it to him, couldn't we, I suppose? Well, there's something here of learning this rhythm of dependence that we have to keep coming back to ask. It reminds us of our place and God's place. Why do we struggle with that? Because whether we want to admit it or not, whether we realize it or not, we want to be that sort of candid. We overvalue ourselves and we undervalue God. We are so prone to overvalue ourselves, to overvalue our own efforts. It's true even just in everyday life. An article from Forbes magazine from 2019, the author talks about the endowment effect. Uh, and she says the endowment effect leads you to overvalue an object simply because you own it. If you sell the object, you'll most likely overprice it. However, the price you would pay for that object, if it wasn't yours already, is substantially lower. Your willingness to accept price is significantly higher than your willingness to pay for that item. In fact, she goes on actually to talk about they've also found an IKEA effect. That is anything that you have been a part of making, even if, uh, you know, it's just an IKEA flat pack thing, suddenly you attribute extra value to it because you did it. We are so prone in so many ways to overvalue ourselves, to overvalue our own abilities, to overvalue our own capability to handle things and to undervalue just how great God is. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we may ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. And he's already spoken about this, hasn't he? His power at work within us, the presence of Christ Jesus himself working within us, the fullness of God actually now being in us alongside us all ways and all places we may seem weak or ordinary but God really is very powerfully working within us so what does Paul ask for here at the end to him be glory in the church 
and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a request. Of all the things that he could ask for the church in Ephesus, all of the sort of struggles that they have, we've spoken about it, that here's a place that is completely determined in its whole economy and survival of, you know, pagan gods. It's a city that houses one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis, temple to Diana. The whole economy works around that temple and the commerce that comes from it. The uh, entertainment sector, the accommodation, the tourism, everything else. They're going to have a problem now about a gospel that says that that God is no God. Wouldn't Paul pray that they would be helped in that? This is not going to be easy. We, we've seen in Acts chapter 18 of how Paul is driven out of the city by a physical uprising. All the things that he could ask. And the thing he asks is not really about them at all, is it? Do you notice that? It's not really to do with them at all. It's not really to do with Ephesus at all, actually, is it? Not reference there at all, is it? To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. What a strange request. Just as we're so prone to overvalue ourselves, to overestimate our significance, and to undervalue God, undervalue his significance. We are so prone to think we are the center of the universe. The, the thing above all things that we need to pray for is us. Hmm. And Paul finishes with a request that is not at all to do about us. To do with God's glory. Everything that God does is always for his glory. Even as you say that, that jars, doesn't it? With a human experience, living in a world, living in a culture and a context that says, everything is about me. Everything is about my happiness, my well-being. My well-being is the most important thing. Hmm. Paul's spontaneous sudden worship here culminates with this sort of jarring request that actually... It is all about God. How can that be okay? How can that be right? That God would ask that it would, that it would all be about him. Isn't that selfish? Isn't that self-absorbed? The problem with mine and yours, self-absorption, self-satisfaction, self-interest, is we've no right to be so interested in ourselves. It's okay for God because God is holy. God is pure. If, if God is the greatest in the whole universe, what else could he do as a good God other than to be completely self-concerned? Because his motives are good. His thinking is good. 
Everything he does is good. It's a problem for us because not everything we do is good. Not everything we think is good or right. Everything we feel is good or right. Salvation in life doesn't look like being able to be free, to be the most me I can possibly be. The true, the unfettered, the unaffected, the unrestricted me. Because as we thought last week, and as Paul wrote, that me is dead. It could be nothing better for us than a God who is thoroughly interested in his own glory, of his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection. There's no God more trustworthy than one who is going to be unwavering in operating for his own glory, since he is good, he is right, he is perfect in all that he ever does. So Paul asks, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations. There could be nothing better for us, there be nothing more hopeful, nothing more secure than knowing that God is working to his own glory. That in all things, even hard things, even challenging things, and Paul sat here panning this from prison, that God is working out his glory. And that the most important thing I ask from my cell isn't that I would get out of the cell, but that God would work out his glory. What a thing. What an amazingly freeing thing to finally be lifted, my chin to be lifted, those all important two or three inches, depending on how long your neck is and how big your chin is, away from my own chest, away from my own self, to look up to him and all that he's doing. And to know that actually God is working this out through the church, through his people, that the wisdom of God might be made known even to the rulers and principalities. Let me pray and then we will um, sing our, our closing song together. Father God, we live in a world in which we are so self-focused. We are so self-absorbed. It's unreal. It's unhealthy. And so much of the time we don't even see it in ourselves. We just thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious and wonderful beyond us, beyond our understanding, that you would come and you would give uh, your son in order to die for us, that we, that we might be restored to you, even though we're, we're dead in our sin, that we're enemies of you, that you would come and that you would do that, not at the moment that we managed to clean ourselves up a bit, that we managed to kind of get a few things together. But you did it right in the middle of all the mess. You did it right in the middle of all the mess, but you also did it in the moment in which we think that we had everything together, but actually we're just completely blind to what a mess we were. Those moments in which we actually kind of feel as though we've got a lot of good things going for us, but that actually we're just blissfully ignorant of just how deeply in need of you we are 
And Lord, I thank you that at that moment, you've done that for each one of us. That's an amazing thing. We could never possibly earn that. We never will. And thank you, Lord, we don't have to. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us together as a people where you've just revealed and gifted all of this to us. Lord, help us to live this out amongst one another. And Lord, in the places in which you've put us, the workplaces and neighborhoods and friends and family, school and university and everywhere else in which we are and and all those people that we're around, Lord, help us. Lord, I, I pray especially that for, for each one of us this morning who is, who is in you this morning, who you've revealed yourself to, that, Lord, we would know clearly that sense of your presence, Lord Jesus, with us by your spirit, empowering us, enabling us, strengthening us, helping us to be the people that you've made us to be. We don't have to try to rely on our own strength. We don't have to try to just pull our socks up, grit our teeth together, clench our fists and do our best but Lord we can know and trust that you are doing your work within us and Lord help us to that sense of your majesty and your sovereignty and your all-sufficiency lead us to keep coming to you in prayer coming to you in request knowing that you hear that you answer and Lord for those who may not have come to know you yet this morning I pray that you would reveal yourself to as you have revealed yourself to us Lord, we just thank you for all that you have given us. And thank you, Lord, that you are so focused on your glory in a way that is just so good for us in that we become a recipients of that and we become blessed and everything through that. So, Lord, I thank you that you're focused on your own eternal plans, your good, your right, your perfect will in nature. And, Lord, pray, as Paul prays here, that we would see your glory through Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.